What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Real Estate Investing Fast Track, formerly known as Pave the Way Podcast. I'm your host, Greg Helbeck, and on this show, you are gonna learn exactly how to be successful as a real estate investor. It doesn't matter if you're brand new or if you've done dozens and dozens of deals. This is a podcast you're gonna be able to listen to that's gonna give you actionable, specific advice on how to be successful within real estate investing. I'm gonna interview top-notch real estate investors each and every week, and there's also gonna be some content that is just gonna be me telling you exactly about my journey and how I've went from a broke kid starting out to a million dollar real estate investor. So if you wanna learn how to be successful investing in real estate, this is the show to listen to, and I'm looking forward to being able to serve you at a high level. Scott Jelinek, welcome to the show, my friend. I've been looking forward to this for a while. Thanks for having me, Greg. I've been looking forward to it myself. Oh, there we go, man. We got a lot of the same mutual friends. So I'm like, I got to get Scott on my podcast, man. This is going to be a good time. So let's just get into, we're going to cover your real estate journey. And then the back half of the show, we'll cover the actual like slow flip system. So how did you get into real estate all these years ago? Because you've been around in real estate since before I was born, believe it or not. Yeah. So what year were you born? 95. All right. So I bought my first couple of houses in 94. And it's interesting. I was mowing lawns back then and you wouldn't know anything about this. And most people don't even remember it. But back then they had a thing called non-qualifying assumptions where it was it was a bank approved program where you were able to take over the existing mortgage, much like sub two, but with the bank's blessing. So all yeah. you would do is you would pay out the owner of their equity. You have a closing, the deed and the mortgage went into your name and then you continued making the payments on it. So my very first one I bought as a landscaper and I had no interest in real estate, but it was $5,000 down and take over the payments, which was about six seventy-five a month on a townhouse. Well, a couple of weeks after I purchased it, a sign went up on my block that said $2,000 down, take over payments. You know, and in hindsight, I laugh at myself for how stupid that was. But in my head, I got ripped off. And I know I knew nothing about the value of the home, how much was owed. I knew nothing about real estate. All I knew was I put 5000 down. This one was 2000 down. And I felt ripped off. So I had this genius idea of let me buy that one also. Right. And so I did. So I purchased the second one on the block, still with no interest in real estate. But now every single month, I had a little reminder. Every month, they would pay me the rent. I would pay the mortgage. And it was constantly nagging at me that I borrowed this money and they're paying it off. I borrowed it, they're paying it off. And then I became obsessed with, back then it was non-qualifying assumptions. How many can I buy, right? And yeah. some I got for as little as like $500 down. The average would go up to about 5,000 down. And I wasn't making any money, but I was accumulating these properties. And it, it went on until about 2001. 2001, a couple of things happened. First, I started to learn to wholesale in 2001. And number two is we started having appreciation. And so I did what everybody taught to do and still teaches to do, which is why I'm so against the grain with what I teach. And it might be against what you even do. So I did what everyone taught to do, which was refi, pull out all the equity. Like, that was do the, the great burn. saying, Re refi till you die. Yeah, they didn't have the burn name back then, but it was the same thing. Right? Refi till you so, die. I've heard that one before. Yeah, so it was just right. keep refi and pull the money out. It's tax free, right? And then buy more <laughs> properties. And I did that. I did what everyone taught to do and I was crushing it. And I got to about 84 properties by 2007. And then overnight in 2007, the world went to crap. And I had 30, 40% of my people in default, couldn't fill anything, couldn't sell anything because the markets went, you know, like to crap craps. So I went from, you know, seemingly the biggest success in the world, right? I got all these properties to, I had about 55 of my own properties lost to foreclosure. Oh, and wow. You know, and that's tough on anybody, but it's really tough on my my Escalade was wrapped in stop foreclosure, right? And you're getting foreclosed on. Yeah. So it was a tough time. But then 
you know, I, I'm thankful for it. And I actually, I wrote an article one time that was the reasons why I was thankful for the bust. And I'm thankful for it because it changed my whole thinking. It changed my whole perception on debt, my whole perception on leverage and what everyone teaches. But at the time, you know, I wasn't thankful at the time, obviously, right? And so I started looking at the people. Most people went back to their jobs and back to their pre-real estate careers, whatever they were. But then there was these people who were killing it and crushing it. And so I started paying attention to them and what were they doing different? And across the board, 100%, they all owned everything free and clear, which was to me mind boggling because you're an idiot if you own stuff free and clear, right? That's what I was always taught, you know, leverage and you can make so much more and more and more. And, And all along, I would have thought these guys, you know, what are they thinking? They can do so much better if they borrowed the money, right? But then after the bust, I was like, huh, maybe they do know something. And so I started changing toward that mindset. But now we had an interesting situation, which was housing prices were ridiculously low, 2008, 9, 10. But yet I had no credit and I had no money left. I had almost a million dollars right before the bust and it all went to trying to save everything. And then I lost it. So I lost it and then the houses. So now I have the housing as cheap as they've ever been. And I can't qualify, have no money and can't qualify for a pack of gum, let alone a house, which is kind of what put together the model, which we do now, which we call the slow flip, where we borrow private money on five-year mortgages, and then we turn around and sell them on long-term mortgages. And I know that was a long answer to a real short question, Greg, but that's that's kind of the background of how I got into doing what it is I do now. I agree with a lot of the stuff you said, because I had started buying rental properties in 2020. And the first three I bought, I have them on 15-year mortgages with a local credit union in New York, in the NYC Metro, kind of where you're from. And those things will be paid off in less than 15 years each. And then the fourth one I bought, I bought it straight cash. It was a condo, kind of in a dicey area. But I'm like, it makes no sense to get financing on this thing. Like the cash on cash return was was phenomenal off the bat. Ridiculous, yeah. So I, I agree with you. And I have a friend, he started buying properties back in 2012. And he would flip a couple houses and then buy a rental cash. And then he'd flip a couple houses, buy a rental cash. He's got 25 properties now, free and clear. And that guy does not have to work again. He's got a big mansion. He's got a Porsche. Freedom. That's, freedom. that's the whole thing. We talk about freedom. Yeah. And the freedom. argument is, and, and I'm glad that you know this guy because it helps to it helps to solidify the argument. Yeah. But the argument from the other side is always, but you can make so much more if, right? And that's always the argument. And my answer to that is always, you go make all that money. Don't worry about me. Yeah. You, you go make all that money. Because the reality is they're right. You can make so much more money if, but that's also if everything stays perfect and continues to be perfect for the rest of your career. And so the, what your friend did is he's free. Whether the market's up, down, sideways, he's free. It doesn't matter anymore. And that's exactly what I've done. It doesn't exactly. matter anymore. He's completely free. He barely gets mortgages now. Sometimes he'll do it. He has a HELOC on his house. If he needs it, he can use that money to buy more properties. But I always used to say like, dude, why don't you just get hard money to fund this thing? He's like, why would I get hard money when I got all this cash and I got all this equity? He's like, that's stupid. And he he might do less volume than me, but he certainly makes more cash flow than me from his rentals. And the thing that you mentioned on another podcast that I was doing in preparation for this one is you use this analogy where a lot of these investors, and I'm definitely guilty of this to an extent, is you have this rental that's spitting off maybe in in my area, 2,500 bucks a month. And my pity to the bank is like 2,300. Right. So I'm going to make a $200 spread, which is really not anything when you count for maintenance and vacancy, but all the money and everyone's training, oh, refi, refi, tax free. Like you use that Simpsons analogy with the bank. Can you kind of get in that for a minute? Because these banks are the smartest ones. And I love how you said that really hit home. Yeah. So I try, I use the Simpsons as a way of trying to get people to visualize what I'm visualizing. Right. And so the way I use it, and it's not so much the Simpsons as it's just Mr. Burns from the Simpsons, right? 
So I try and tell them, I said, you go to any city in America, any metro area, and there's tall buildings and they typically all have bank logos on the side. Yes. And there's a reason for that. Right. And and then I say to visualize Mr. Burns, everybody knows Mr. Burns, right, to be sitting up there at the top of the building looking at us being run along, run along, because he's talking to you about your $200 a month that you're making or $500 a month you're making. But he's telling you to go run along, put signs out, answer the calls, fill the property, then answer their maintenance calls, then deal with the stolen air conditioning unit. Then if they don't pay, take them to court, do all this work, but all the while collecting the money and sending it on up to him. And he's sitting up there waiting. He's like, oh, do your job, run along. And the reality is all the work is involved down there. Right. It's us running around doing the work. And all he's doing is just sitting here waiting for the checks. And that's really what we did with the slow flip model is we flipped it on its head to where that is exactly what we do now. We're not running around doing any of that stuff. We are sitting at the top of the building or be at home or wherever. And we're just having the checks sent to us. My wife was just asking me before. It's three o'clock now that we're meeting. And she's like, well, you're going to go in today. And I said, well, it's the fifth. I really want to go in because most people pay their payments on the first through the fifth. And we do a lot of online processing, but I want to know whose payments are in by the fifth because I guarantee you I go to the P.O. box today and I got a stack. That's me being Mr. Burns. All, they did all the work and a lot of them are investors. They did the, you know, the renting them out. They did the cleanup, the painting, the leaky toilet. They did all of it. But the check just comes to me. And my job is just to go to the P.O. box and then make the deposits. A hundred percent. A lot less work for a much better result. You know, I always say this to people. They don't believe me at first. I say the money is not in the real estate. The money is actually in the money, whether that's the private money yeah. or the owner financing or the, the private investors that I borrow millions of dollars from every year for my fix and flips. Like the money is in the money and people don't realize that. And the banks are as wealthy as they are because of they're controlling the money. So why don't you explain the slow flip process and then we'll start to chop it up and, and break it down because this is a really interesting thing. I actually sent one of your podcasts to my dad. I'm like, yeah, Yo, you should consider doing this. So I'm going to give you our base numbers. And I want to clarify before I get into it that in some markets, people will hear these numbers and they want to scream through the radio or through the TV that that's not possible. And houses in that price range yeah. don't exist. I assure you they do exist. And I always say before you argue, just go to Google and you can find we have whole states with thousands of them oh, available. Yeah of them. So a typical model, mind you, we do them in every price range. My highest price one is 875000 but the typical model is a $30,000 house, which before people go crazy that they don't exist, I assure you they do. There's multiple states that exist. You know, you can go to Missouri, Illinois, Ohio, Alabama. Pennsylvania. Kentucky. I've done flips. I've done, yeah. I've bought how I've bought probably 12 houses that were sub 50 grand in the last 24 yeah. months. Yeah. So we buy them and then we use private money, the full amount. You can borrow private money. We pay 12% interest and it's amortized at a 60 month mortgage, a 60 month loan. So it's not a balloon. Like a lot of people think, oh, that's great. But then how are you going to handle these balloons? There is no balloon. It's 60 payments and then it's free and clear. No different than a, a 15 year mortgage you had with 180 payments. This is just 60 payments. And then it is free and clear. So we buy them on a private five-year mortgage. And then immediately the day we buy it, we market it for sale. So typically on a $30,000 one, we're marketing for sale around seventy-nine dollars or $89,000. We'll typically get about $3,000 down and eight seventy-five dollars a month. Now on eight seventy-five dollars a month, we really don't make any money because our payment comes out to six sixty-seven thirty-three, dollars and that's at 12% interest, right, on a five-year yeah. mortgage. And then we have taxes and insurance. So maybe you make 50, 100 bucks. But I always tell my people that's no money. Don't consider it as though you're making a dollar until it's paid off. Right. And then we just then all we're doing is processing payments. But after the 60th month, 
that's when the magic happens. Now all of a sudden the money comes in and it's yours. Like your friend, I have 178 of these now and about 90 of them are free and clear. And I have 24, one package, 24 of them come free and clear this December. And I love it. I love the free and clear because now all the money that comes in every month is mine. And it makes such a difference than what I was doing before when I had 84. I had 84 rents coming in. I had 84 mortgages going out and it was just churning. And now it's a complete different ballgame. The money comes in and every month I have less and less mortgages that I pay. That's amazing. So I got some questions on that. So the first question is that, are you selling these properties on a straight owner finance wrap note or are you doing a contract for deed? And then who's paying the taxes? Are you the landlord or are you a lien lord? Because that's where it's. I was a little confused about this. We do them on an agreement for deed. What is an agreement do, for deed? Just if it's someone a, it's a land contract, agreement okay. for deed, a contract for deed. They're they're different names in different states, but basically the way I explain it to my buyers is this: I say when you buy a house with a bank, the yeah. deed goes in your name, and then you pay on it for thirty years. When you buy a house from me, you pay for thirty years, and then the deed goes in your name. It's the exact same end result. You pay for 30 years and you own the house in the end. Same same end result, whether or not you got the deed now or in the end. Taxes was your next question. Was, yeah, who was pays property the property taxes? taxes and the insurance on that? Well, they pay for the insurance, but we can do it through us. But we definitely pay the property taxes. Okay. And the reasoning is, as you already know, because they won't pay it. In the beginning, I started having everybody pay their own stuff. And what would happen is they don't pay it. And now, even though they're paying you and they're current with you, you still need to default them because those taxes are going to be due. So after I got burned a a couple of times back in 2011, I changed the model to where, no, everything comes to me and I pay the taxes and I pay the insurance. Now, we have it in our new contracts that they get their own homeowner's policy. In my area, I have an insurance company that insures all my people as homeowners. But some of the other states, we have not found a company that will insure them as a homeowner. In those states, I'll get the policy and just pass on the bill to them. Okay. So do you take the tax payment? Like, let's say, I mean, the taxes aren't that expensive on a 30K property or a 90K property. Are you building the tax payment into their PITI from the buyer? So you're kind of buffering that in. So they're paying maybe $100 a month more, but that's going to absorb the taxes. So you're really just having it come through you. So you're paying the the taxes. Make sure it gets paid, right? Okay. So that is an absolute win-win scenario because then they don't have to worry about it. And then you're the one paying the taxes and in full control of the asset, especially with that private lender there for 60 months. Now, maintenance and repairs. This is something that there's a guy named Mitch Steven and he does a lot of financing. I'm sure you know who he is. And he hated being a landlord and he loves being a lien lord because when the toilet breaks, and I I just got a service call from my property manager today, the oven's broken. I got to go pay for a new oven. These buyers are on a contract for deed. So anything that goes wrong with that property, especially if they're like sectionating it to somebody, they don't call you. You don't call Chase or Wells Fargo. That's exactly right? what I tell them. I, when we do the paperwork, I say, you, I said, if you have a leak under the sink, you wouldn't call Bank of America. Don't call me. That's yeah. it. If you need someone to call, there's a, well, I always say the yellow pages, even though nobody knows what the yellow pages are anymore. <laughs> you can Google plumbers near me and you'll find one, but there's no reason to call me. There's no maintenance, so you're, you're, you're not having to worry about that. Now, how many of these buyers now that you're selling to are going the distance on 30 years, or how many of them are either refining or selling these things? Like, how often does these things stick around? Because you have a cash exit, even because there's such a big margin there, right? Yeah. So, they a lot of them stick around. And during these last few years, now it'll probably slow down now, but during these last few years, we had a lot sell or refi because the rates were so low. Yeah. And it worked out, you know, so I got properties I paid 20 grand for. I sold for 89 and they wow. cashed me out. So I'm getting the 89. However, the values went up so much. Sometimes they're selling them at 189. 
Wow. And but they crushed it, mind you. But I'm like, but they've been with me eight years. They renovated the house. They've been making the payments and taking care of it. They deserve it. I want my buyers to make money because the more my buyers make more money, the more houses they want to buy from me. Right. We're sure. still making great money off what we did. We bought it with no money out of pocket and have a seventy thousand dollar markup in it. We didn't renovate it. We didn't do anything. We collected cash flow all this time where they paid down our mortgage and now we get paid off. They got paid too, but I'm okay with that. I want everyone to make money. My yeah. lender makes money. I make money. My buyer makes money. 100%. Now, this is where, because um, I've, I've pretty much done business in like New York and Delaware and California, where I currently live on the West Coast. Would you do something, like as upstate New York, for example, like Buffalo, Rochester, Syracuse, you can get properties there for basically nothing. But the problem yeah. that I have as a landlord is I had an eviction. It almost took me two years and like two lawsuits. Yeah, so-, so- New York works as far as the price points, but we don't buy in New York because of that, because they're not landlord friendly. They're actually the opposite. It's like California. I would never buy in California. So we buy in specific states. They have to meet our price points, but they also have to be landlord friendly where we can, if somebody defaults, it's just a regular eviction process, not two years of being caught up in court. That is where I see a lot of value in this, as you just said it, because if you're selling on a contract for deed, you can do an eviction versus a foreclosure. But if you're in a state where it's like a a non-judicial foreclosure, you can get it like in Texas, you can get somebody out on a foreclosure in like 65 days if you know what you're doing. Yep, Same thing in Alabama requires a foreclosure, but they're quick. You can do it in six, eight weeks. And so in some states, it's okay, depending on their process. But we try and do the ones where you can just do a regular eviction. Got it. And then what does your process look like for screening tenants? Because I mean, the landlord laws aren't bad in your area. So like, what do you do? You look for income? Do you look for a huge down payment? Like, what's your strategy to get people in the door here? Well, we get them in the door is easy. We we can talk about how we find them in a second. But my requirements are first come, first serve. First person to put the cash in my hand is the one who gets it. And I do that for several reasons. I know a lot of people hate that, but I do it for several reasons. One of the biggest reasons is that's how I started. When I started buying, there were non-qualifying assumptions, but there was no credit check. There was no income. There was no job check. There was nothing other than first person to make a deal with the owner is the one who got it. And so I always felt like, well, who am I to judge someone else when I bought all my properties that way? Right. With no qualification. And the second reason is, depending on the state you're in, the laws regarding discrimination can be challenging. Like a lot of people believe that you can get 20 applications and then pick the most qualified. And that should be your right. And to be honest, you should be allowed to do that. Pick the most qualified. And that's the one you go with. But the way the law reads, and, and I can't speak for every state, is that you have to have a minimum criteria set. And the first person to meet your minimum criteria is the one that gets it. And if you didn't do that, if you said you want him to make 20 grand a month and you got one that makes 20, but then you got another guy who makes 100 grand a month and you're like, well, I'd rather have him. But now you discriminated against that other one. And so I know how I am as far as keeping paperwork and being organized and I'm not very good at it. So I'm like, listen, first come, first serve. So nobody could ever say I discriminated on anybody. So I do the first person to put the money in my hand is the one who gets it. That's very fair. I I like that because then you're giving everybody an opportunity to obviously get involved in these properties. So here's my next question. This is is something I was really thinking about. You're selling a lot of these to investors who are going to landlord these out, right? But when you're selling this to a consumer who's going to live in the property, and let's say they're getting the financing because they probably can't get a bank loan or they don't know how to get these deals. Are you like if somebody's buying a property and they're not super wealthy and they're a consumer, they're going to live there. If they buy this house and it, they can get financing from you, 
on a you know 30 year note, but they don't have the resources. How do you kind of deal with the consumers? Because if like, let's say they're buying it and you can do the financing with 3K down, but then it's like 30K to renovate, like how are they gonna get the money to renovate it? Like that's that was my other question on this. So if it's a 30K renovation, it's gotta go to an investor. That's not meant for a yeah. homeowner. Yeah, but we do, ha I have had situations okay. and these are the one-offs. This isn't part of the plan, but I've done it. I've had situations where I have a girl with me in Virginia Beach in a townhouse and she's been with me years and we started getting violations from the association about the roof and she couldn't afford to get it done, couldn't afford. So finally I sent over my guy and got an estimate. It was only like two grand. It was a townhouse roof, but she didn't have any money. And so what I agreed to do is I said, well, listen, I'm going to go ahead and pay it. And then we're just going to charge you an extra $200 a month until you get okay, it paid put on the note. She, yeah, she agreed. It worked out for everybody in this way because I want to protect the house as well. We're still oh, the yeah. you know, owner. And so this way, everybody, everybody worked out winning on the deal rather yeah. than just saying, sorry, you have no choice and now you have to move. Yeah, right. Exactly. And here's another thing I like about this from a fairness stand view. There's a lot of people who talked about lease options and I've done these. They're, they're interesting. The reality of lease options is that the odds of that buyer buying the property are very low yeah. and you're going to keep that deposit legally unless you're in like New York or California or one of these ridiculous states. So like, it, I wouldn't say someone's setting up the buyer to fail on a lease option, but I mean, there's a low chance they're going to be successful. So well, I, I feel like lease options I, can be a little slimy. I yeah. have a lot of friends who do lease options and I used to do lease options yeah. up until 2011. And it, it was when I lost in court one time that uh, from oh, something that just told okay. me. Yeah, which is why I switched to what we do now because he had told me I did used to do lease options and he basically explained to me how he said, no, 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 you can put whatever you want in a contract, but that doesn't make it the law. He said yeah, the Landlord-Tenant yeah. Act still applies, even though you said the tenant's responsible for all the maintenance. You can say whatever you want, but it's not it's illegal. So he told me the benefits and burdens have to convey together, right? You can't keep the benefit yeah. and give them the burden. And so I met with an attorney and I went over everything that just happened and he's the one that revised me into the program we do now which is an agreement for deed. And this is why we have such a bad reputation. And by we, I mean real estate investors in general who do owner financing, rent to own, lease options, because most people do it in such a way that, and I hate to call it a scam because there's nothing illegal or immoral about what they're doing, yeah. but it's in a sense, like you just said, setting them up to fail. Yeah. If somebody doesn't have good enough credit today to buy, they're not going to have it in 12 months or 24 months. They're still going to not qualify. And now they lost that 10 grand down they gave you and they fixed up the place for 24 months. And in the end, most people are like, oh, sorry, you got to leave it. Well, you got to pay another fee. It's technically, it's not a scam. I mean, and I did, everybody did it. It's That's yeah, the way lease it. options work. Yeah. But when you can Compare that to what we do now. I'm like the people that we deal with are getting a huge opportunity because they never have to refi. They never have a balloon. They never have to move. They're never going to get a rent increase. They can stay there for the rest of their lives. It is their home. And I try and make that abundantly clear with people. This is not a lease option. You don't have the option to buy. You are buying it right now from day yeah. one. It's so much more beneficial for that consumer because lease options are definitely a slippery slope. This is like they have the certainty. They have the peace of mind. If they're an investor, they have the, the consistent pity. They're going to pay you for 30 years. The rent's always going to go up, most likely. They're going to have to deal with all the bullshit. And then the consumer now, like I see a lot of value in selling to the consumer because this is a home that probably they would have never gotten on their own. You're providing the value in the financing. The payment isn't terribly high because they're buying a house generally sub 100 grand. It's a win-win across the board. And then they can right. sell that thing or refi, whatever. And then, you know, it's a win-win for everybody. Question for you on a tax basis. Now that you're selling this on a contract for deed, you're paying some of the taxes, the insurance. Are you able to depreciate these things until the deed transfers? Or like, so, I, that's why I buy a lot of rentals because I just pay less in taxes. Yeah, so if you speak to eight different, and I got, I've been audited three times, right? And I'm going to tell you exactly what the yeah. auditor told me. Because yes, we do depreciate them. And we book our income as as rent. As rental income. And, right. 
And and then you some CPAs are like, no, you have to break it down every month. This much was principal, this yeah. much interest. There's all different ways of doing it. But I've been audited three times and I, I went over everything, the contracts, everything. And everything was blessed by the auditor. However, the auditor told me this, and I'll never forget it. My first audit I did myself. I sat with him for eight hour yeah. days, right? And I, I asked a lot of questions because I want to know that we're doing stuff properly, right? Yeah. So he told me, he says, there is in my market, and we're in Hampton Roads, there's two and a half million people. He said, we have eight auditors for Hampton Roads. So for two and a half million people, there's eight guys who do audits. <laughs> he said, if all eight of us audited you, we'd have eight different answers. There is more tax code than any one person can read in their entire lifetime. And so we all interpret it to the best of our ability, which sure. basically was saying, who knows what the heck will who happen. Knows? Your it's next audit can look at it completely different. Yeah. yeah. And it's a horrible way to have a tax code, but that's what we got. There's more yeah. tax code than anybody could even know. And so we all just do the best we can. It does make sense if you're paying the taxes and the deed's still in your name. Like I would totally cost seg these things or whatever, or just straight line them. If you're getting the tax benefits of a rental, you don't got to worry about the bullshit repairs, which is kills all landlords and vacancy. And you know, you can write it off as rental income. It's probably the best thing I've ever seen because most landlords do the landlord business because it's not necessarily that cash flow. It's okay. I made 500 grand. I'm in a net a hundred thousand in taxes because of all this cost segregation stuff. So you can right. combine that. It's freaking powerful, man. I just want to clarify oh. something. The way the tax code is written, at least the way I interpreted it, you should be paying based on the interest and not on the principal. You should be passing along the depreciation. They do get to write off the interest you pay. But the way he asked me a lot of questions. So he asked me questions like, well, how often do they turn over? How often do people stay full term? And my answer, I only started this in 2011. Nobody's ever stayed full term yet because it's a 30 year thing. Yeah. And so he said, so so then the likelihood is that they, they turn over over, in which case we're going to treat it and they treated it just like a rental. And this is from the auditor's mouth. So I'm like, all right, well, this is from the IRS. So I'm like, you know, but, but again, I, when I read the code, I read where it's different, but more tax code than anybody can ever right. possibly read themselves. That's why tax attorneys make a thousand dollars an hour. Ask my buddy yep. Devin how he knows that one. Right. So yep. yeah, it's interesting. So you're selling these properties as is to investors and consumers. What are you doing to get these buyers in the door? Because I would imagine there's an insatiable demand for people who want to buy properties like this because you're creating that much value. Yeah. So it's gotten easier and easier and easier over the years because now we sell to so many of the same people and we have a waiting list because yeah. again, it's first come first serve. So whenever they don't get one, they're like, Oh, let me know right away. Like when the next one comes up. So the way we've always done it though, is three different things. It was, we put out white signs with black magic marker. If you've seen my other podcast, you know, we talk about misspelling them words crumbled in, you know, and making it look poorly. And this is something I learned on accident because my handwriting is deplorable and I normally wouldn't write a sign, but I was on my own keys back on a house. So I filled it out myself. Phone rang off the hook like crazy, filled the house in a day, went, picked up my sign, stuck him in my office. And a week or two later, a guy that was working with me comes in the office and he goes, what, what's a Chep house? And I was like, excuse me, He's like Chep, Chep house, C-H-E-P. And I'm like, oh, I felt like an idiot. I'm like, I, I literally was just writing fast and I wrote in cheap, instead of cheap, I wrote Chep and I felt like an idiot. But then it started dawning on me and I said, I wonder if that's why my phone rang so crazy because the signs looked so bad. So then we started testing good looking signs, bad signs, good looking signs, bad signs. And it's like 10 to one, the response rate on bad signs. Wow. And I've asked people when I fill houses, I, I always have a conversation. I ask them and I got a clear answer on the reason when they see a nice looking sign, our buyer knows with certainty there's going to be a $45 application fee and they're going to get denied anyway. When they see our sign, they look at it and they think there's a guy I can work with. 
And so everybody's flocking to get to that sign because that's the one that they can work with. The, the second and third thing we do is we do the, the white signs, magic marker misspelled, and then we do Craigslist and Facebook Marketplace. Yeah, and that's it. Those three things. Cool. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Facebook Marketplace is the new Craigslist now. I mean, Craigslist still works too, but yeah, I mean, it's just, there's so many people on there looking in the housing category. If somebody wants to do the strategy, number one, they got to go get your book, which we'll talk about later in your, in your program. But the money's in the deals and the dollars. If you can get the deals yeah. and the dollars and the systems lined up, Getting the customers in the door is not going to be the hard part from what I can tell here. Yeah. And then once you have a system that's automated, you know, like you said, you're, you're Mr. Burns up there collecting these payments and you pay those yeah. off for 60 months. And now you got 25, 30, 40, 80 of these. You don't have to work again. And you're like my friend, Joe, even though he's done it a little bit differently with his New York business, but very interesting business model. I want to transition to another segment of the show on actually like the, the wholesaling stuff, because you made a pivot in your business that was very interesting. I heard about you and Billy Alvaro, another Long Island guy, were doing a show yeah. and really piqued my interest because I'm kind of in a similar boat with you. So before we get into that, we'll talk about the slow flip at the end, how they can get the book and everything. If they wanted to just check it out now, maybe their attention span isn't there. How do they get this book? What's the best web? Because so, you never know with these, these podcasts. Listening. You're right. So the, the name of the book is The Art of the Slow Flip. And I've detailed in detail every part of the business from beginning to end, how you go about doing it. And I was told you I was giving everybody a free copy if they just go to slowflip.com, S-L-O-W-F-L-I-P.com. Just pay the shipping and handling and I got free copies and we'll send right on out. Slowflip.com. What a domain name that is. That's And I see your Facebook, you're like in Italy and you have the picture of the slope. Yep. I love that. That's great marketing. I was getting a kick out of that. So you made a pivot in your flipping business, wholesaling business, whatever you want to call it. And I know you used to have a large team and you were you know doing volume and, and a lot of people like I'm wearing the same circles. Everyone's bragging about how many deals they're doing, how big their team is, their overhead, their gross revenue. And nobody nets anything. And I see this and I know the truth. And I'm like, yeah, like you're doing 200 houses a year. But like, what are you putting home in your pocket? Then sometimes you're like, it. wouldn't you rather just do 10 houses? You made the same amount of money right? that you would have made doing 10, doing 200. That's bullshit. Right? You don't have a fucking HR person. It's a whole thing. And we're kind of in purgatory now in our business with like, we're like kind of getting big, but then we're still kind of like, you know, in the middle. So what was your business like when you were doing volume? Let's call it volume wholesaling. And then what was that like, like epiphany you had where you're like, you know what, let me scale this thing back and net more. Because I think that's honestly a better business if you really, you know, get into the nitty gritty and the transactions. So when I started recovering from the bust and you're talking about late 08 is really, I started making money again about October of 08 for about a full year. I didn't make any money from about mid 2007 to mid 2008. I was just showing up to work every day and hanging out in the office because there was no deals going on and yeah, it was, it was, the world no was in turmoil. Ahead. But yeah. about mid 2008, you know, we started making money again I, and I was rehabbing then and I was building and I was wholesaling oh and God. this went on for five years and then we grew and grew and grew and we were doing good, not a ton, but we were doing about a hundred deals a year. And in 2013 was my first time I did a month long trip where we were gone. We went to Panama for an entire month and rented a big, beautiful house on the beach. It was absolutely great. But one thing that happens when you have a month on your own is you have a lot of time to think, right? And I was working on my first book. I remember I was typing, working on my first first book back then. It's called Work Just Gets in the Way of Making Money. One of the things I really realized while I was there is that I was doing so many things just to keep other people employed. The way I was worded, I said, I, my employees didn't work for me. I worked for them. Yeah, I was doing so I many like. things, keeping everybody employed. I was doing deals I wouldn't have done because I didn't want him to not get his commission. I was doing deals that that I was marginal at best, but I wanted to, didn't want to lose my contractor. So I got to keep them on the next job. If I didn't have one, I'll just buy another house. And and I realized how stupid it was. I was like, I'm doing so much volume, but I'm not making any money. I'm making money, but not much. And when I got back, this is in 2013, I brought it back to just being me or me and my wife. 
and we do a fraction of the deals we used to do, a fraction, but I make more money than ever. And so I always try and clarify that with people when they when they talk and, they, and like you're saying, people are bragging about how many deals. I always say, well, what are we in business for? Are you in business to renovate neighborhoods or change as many houses as possible? You're in business to make money. If you're in business to make money, I make more money, a lot more money doing it the way I do it now. But I have a friend who he's got like 26 employees and you probably know him as well. He's in my market. And we've had lunch and compared our numbers. And we're almost exactly the same, yeah. which I thought was really interesting. And so when we were talking about it at lunch, he's like, but I, I like that I'm employing all these people depending on me to eat. And, you know, and we're building families. And so there's nothing wrong with that. If that's what you're into, he, yeah. he enjoyed what he was doing with that. Where for me, I'm like, no, I I'm at home. I haven't even left my house yet today. I'm, you know, I'm going to leave after just to go to the PO box, but I don't have anybody depending on me other than my family. You know what I mean? I don't have 20 other families that I have to feed. And all that's great too. When the market's good, when the market gets bad, even a small shift, all of a sudden you have to start making decisions on whose family are we feeding mine or theirs. And it could get dicey real quick. It certainly happened to a lot of people last June because the market was an upswing, you know, everyone's dancing out to the party. And then all of a sudden these rates go up five points and everyone's like, oh shit, I'm not selling my flips. I've told this to people like, when you're a one-man show or a two-man show or a small operation doing three to four deals a month, it's your real estate deal maker, right? But when you have a team of 5, 10, 20 people, now you have to be a deal maker, a cash flow manager, and a manager of people, which is like a culture department. And it's a whole other skill set. And if you want to do it, great. But this business is the whole point of the business is freedom. Your program is called the Freedom Acceleration Formula, right? Yeah. We're not, we don't want jobs because we want the freedom to do whatever we want. And I always tell people like, if you could do three deals a month at $30,000 a shot, in theory, that's a buck 20 a month. If you can run at a 70% margin, you're netting seven figures and you might have one or two VAs or your wife or your brother working with you. Right. And it's a lot easier because I've kind of been at the smaller point. Now we're getting a little bit bigger. And I think I'm going to go a little bit more like to the smaller operation now, potentially. And you just make more money. And if you have a bad month, you're not burning. Like I think we lost $60,000 in July, like yeah. as a company because of all the overhead we have. And I'm like, this is ridiculous. Like we're, and, we and then what if it goes August in September? It's like, at what point do we say, okay, we got to, we got to cut. Exactly. So now with your more simple operation on the transactional side, what are you guys doing to bring deals in the door? Because marketing is a whole business within a business. And right. if you only have a few people working, I'm sure you're a lot more strategic and intentional with what you're doing to get customers. So we have two sides of our business and that's the slow flip business and the yeah. wholesaling business. Sure. So for the slow flip business, we really don't do any marketing. We we do get slow flips through marketing, but it's the same marketing that we did for wholesales yeah, you in, just, in my market. And then we also buy out in the Midwest. And in those markets, you don't need to do any marketing because there's just abundant, readily available houses that meet yeah. our numbers there. So for the wholesaling, we basically, I've, I used to do a ton of different marketing. Now I really just do two things and that's direct mail and pay-per-click. Yeah, and mostly I'm getting my deals from pay-per-click. It's expensive. But again, when it's just me, I don't have to do a lot of deals and we, we do really well with it. We can, you know, we can do a handful of deals and do really well. And so that's kind of how we stick it. hundred percent. Those are the two best channels I say, cause the, the SEO stuff is great, but it's out of your control for the most part. The PPC, I can turn that on, turn that off direct mail. Everyone always complains. I've been mailing for like, I've been mailing at volume for five years. I'm like, that's the best marketing channel out there because you're in total control of it. You can target who you want to get, you know, the leads are scale. You, you can, can scale, scale with direct mail. Like even on the internet, you can say, I'm going to give this much a budget, but you still can't always even spend the budget because yep. there's only so many people searching those terms. Exactly. With direct mail, you can scale to any amount you want. Exactly. And and those calls, I've always said, like, if, if my response rate is a half a percent, which it is, there's a reason those people are calling me because 99.9% .9 of them are throwing that in the garbage 
And the people who are calling are, they might not be laydowns, but they're calling because they want to sell a property. Like they're interested. Right. People like forget about that. And they're like, oh, they're not motivated. I'm like, yeah, you should probably call them back and have a different conversation with them. But Scott, man, this has been a pleasure. The slow flip stuff blew my mind. And I'm glad we got to kind of get you on our show and really, you know, crack, crack the code to this. I love how you made that transition in your business, man. It's cool to see from afar. So if people want to check the slow flip system out, it's slowflip.com. They can get a free copy of your book if they pay shipping. If they wanted to check out the freedom acceleration formula, is there a website for that? Or do they have to go through the slow flip and then get involved they, on the email? They could, they could do it through. We also have an online training, the free online training. But the reason I like people to typically read the book first yeah. is because not everybody, even you people that are listening to you and even people that I talk to on podcasts, not everybody resonates with slow flips. Some yeah. people, although they're talking and they, you know, they want to be nice about it in their head. They're thinking he's so stupid. They could, he can borrow money and make so much more money or who wants to deal with this? You know, you're a slumlord or all these horrible things. Right. And so I always tell people, I said, start with that because some people finish the book and they cannot wait to email me or write me or message me that I'm changing everything. This is me. It, it resonated with my heart. This is what I'm going to do with my future. And that's why I like people to read the book first, because it helps to weed out the people that should be doing slow flips and the people who are going to say, you know what, screw this. I want to go back to rebuilding houses or whatever they want to do. And that's okay. Wait, There's a million ways to make a million dollars, right? We don't all have to do the same thing. And so that's why I kind of like them to start off with the book. It's a great place to start. I love it. That's awesome. And you got, I know you got an audible book on there too, so people can listen yep. to it. And did you narrate that yourself or did you have an I, author? I did not, unfortunately. And I know I listen to a lot of audible and they're always better when the author narrates it. But I also know myself. My first book, I tried and tried for me to be the one to do it. And it went on forever. And then finally I broke down and I said, that's it. I'm hiring somebody. And two weeks later I had it out. And I said, that's it. Let's, you know, know yourself. Right. And, yeah. and that was, you know, I said, Hey, if I, I could either have it out or I could have it done myself. Totally. It'll never be out. Totally. Yeah. For sure. So we'll make sure slowflip.com. Quick question. I guess, I guess bonus content here. So slow flips. I'm in San Diego. I'm about to move to Reno, two expensive areas. I'm formerly from your neck of the woods, the tri-state area. You mentioned you had a slow flip that was 875. Right. So yeah. if someone's going to slow flip a larger asset, I'm assuming that they would need to do some sort of owner financing with the seller and then turn around and owner finance that to the buyer. Like what would be the strategy if somebody wants to go with a bigger dollar amount? And let's say they're yeah. in a so I never want to go with a bigger dollar amount, but I never turn down opportunity. Right. And so I've done even commercial buildings. I slow flip them just the same. I'll slow flip a fourplex. I got one guy in my group slow flipping a 16 flex right now. So we'll slow flip anything. But the main strategy is to pay them off in five years. However, through our regular marketing, we also come across a lot of sub twos. And yes. I'll buy a sub two. I'll buy it on, you know, on a regular sub two and then sell it on a slow flip because there's two sides of the slow flip, the buy side and the sell side. So the buy side is where I'm always trying to have them paid off in five years. But sometimes that doesn't fall into place. But I'll get a, a $300,000 house that I can get for 180 sub two. And I'll turn around and sell it right off the bat for 299, 30-year mortgage, and I'll make five, six, eight hundred dollars a month on the spread. And I got nothing into it because my down payment, you know, their down payment covered my down payment. And yeah. then, then we still try and just pay it off as quick as possible, but it's not going to be on the five-year plan. The yeah. sub twos are going to be on a longer plan. And I see a big opportunity in, in the future for that because I, I we're seeing with our marketing, especially in Delaware, there's a lot of people in pain. Like there's a lot yeah. of people who, and this is another thing I was watching another podcast the other day, Sean Terry was on Steve Trang's show and someone was saying like, okay, the reason people aren't selling now is because this, the interest rates are at 3%, right? A lot of these rates are, but if you have no money and you have no choice and it's either sell your house and save yourself or save your 3% rate, people are going to sell. 
right? People yeah. are going to sell. So I see a big opportunity where people can obviously slow flip the regular way and get involved in creative because it's really the acquisition of the disposition. If you can master that, I mean, like Scott, you could set yourself up to where you have 10, 15, 30, 50 of these properties. You can start buying them up like clockwork. Five, 10 years from now, you're never working again, right? And you're making yeah. more money than you can believe. Well, we're already money. never working again. I do this. For, I mean, we have 178 already. 90 yeah. of them are already paid off. So we're already there. But but it's one of those things that I, I almost quit. I'll tell you a real quick story. I almost not quit, but I almost stopped buying when I was at about 70. I might have had 75. And I was on my way to a baseball game with a friend of mine. He's an older guy. He's been a lender for a while. And I, as we were driving, I said, I think I'm out. And he's like, what do you mean? I said, I have, I already have more coming in than I can spend every month. I said, so I think I'm done. And he's, his answer was really good. And he says, he says, keep buying. And I said, but why? I don't need any more. And he says, he says, you don't use any money. It doesn't take any time. You're not doing anything because I have a system in place for everything. He says, why would you stop? He says, when it's done, the market will tell you it's done. When it no longer works, He's like, the market will tell you when it's over. You don't have to decide. And I'm so thankful I had that conversation because I'm at 178 now. And it's a hundred more than at least a hundred more than I had it during that conversation. But I was just thinking, I'm already making more than I can spend. What do I, why am I going to keep doing it? But he had a very good point. He's like, it's not costing you anything. You're not doing anything. So why would you stop? Yeah, right. It's not that much work for a huge substantial upside. And then at that point, like do whatever you want. You know, you can already do that now. But yeah, no, it's a good, it's the a good smallest- point. The smallest houses, a twenty thirty thousand dollar house, pays eight seventy five a month, and a lot of people don't realize amortization schedules are crazy, right? But on a thirty year mortgage, the payout you get is three hundred and fifteen thousand dollars on a on a twenty thirty thousand dollar house. When you do the math, I'm like, listen, amortization schedules are great when you're on the receiving end. They suck when you're on the paying end. Yeah, but on the receiving end, they're great. Well, that's probably why you can do the five year twelve percent interest with a private lender because you're really not paying that much interest because you're, you're not much at all. That, it's like buying a car. You're like buying a Hyundai. Exactly. And that's what got us that way. Because I remember when prices started getting cheap, I remember thinking, I'm like, well, how come if you buy a fifty thousand dollar car, you do it in five years, but you buy a house, they want to do it for thirty years. So we started playing with the amortization schedule, and I was like, no, this is why we're using private money because banks don't want to do that. They don't want. They yeah. want you in debt forever. They don't yeah. want to let you pay it off in five years. And so we yeah. changed it and made it. Nope. We buy them like a car. We sell them like a house. That might have to be a potential title. Buy a car like a, buy a house like a car, sell it like a house with Scott Jelinek. We'll, I'll yeah. talk about it and we'll see if he, if he likes that title. So <laughs> slowflip.com, check the book out. Scott, if people want to follow you online, what's the best social media channel for them to check you out at? I'm on all of them under my own name. So it's pretty easy to find me. I basically think I'm on every single social media there is except Snapchat. I don't know if that's a thing that people go on. I haven't figured it out. My son's on it. That's the only one. <laughs> I think I'm not on, but I'm on all the rest of them under my own name. Oh, that's awesome. We'll make sure we got in the show notes too. Scott, I appreciate your time today. This was a really fun show. Thank you for coming on as a guest. Thank you for having me. It was a good time. Thank you for listening to an episode of the Real Estate Investing Fast Track. I hope you got a lot of value from this specific episode. And there are a few takeaways that you're able to gather from this to implement in your business so you can be a more successful real estate investor. So if you did get value from the show, if you could do me a favor and leave me a review on iTunes, it would really mean a lot to me. That's how we keep growing the show and getting great guests is because people see the reviews, they see that we have a high quality show and they want to contribute as a guest. So that would be great. Also, if you got value, if you could share the show on social media, that would be great because that is how people see this besides the reviews. So once again, if you did get value, if you could do me a favor and leave me a review on iTunes and share the show on social media, it would really mean a lot to me and I'll see you on the next episode.